the late Presbyterian pastor and seminary professor Jack Miller used to refer to himself as a recovering Pharisee. Sometimes he'd begin his sermons and say, Greetings, my name is Jack Miller, and I am a recovering Pharisee. And then, chuckling and with a winsome smile, he'd say, And you're one too. But don't worry, Jesus is a great Savior. So if you don't mind me copying one of my heroes and mentors, let me begin my sermon just like Jack used to. Greetings, my name is Benji Magnus, and I am a recovering Pharisee, and you're one too. But don't worry, Jesus is a great Savior. And that's our big idea today. I am a recovering Pharisee, and you're one too. But don't worry, Jesus is a great Savior. That's the takeaway from being exposed by this section in Mark's gospel today. So turn to Mark chapter 7 in your Bibles if you haven't. And what we'll see is that we, more often than we realize, and more often than we want to admit, we often function and live our lives as Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were one of the main spiritual leaders in Jesus' day. And as we'll see in our passage, they loved and elevated their own traditions, their own rules, their own regulations. They elevated them above God's word. They were self-righteous, they were hypocrites, and they were pregnant with pride. They looked down on others and thought that Only they were truly loving and following God. In their eyes, everybody else, there was a bunch of slackers who couldn't get their act together. And in our passage today, Jesus will air all of their dirty laundry. He will air out the hearts of the Pharisees. The truth is that we can be Pharisees. All of us think more highly of ourselves than we should. All of us look down on others. All of us minimize our own sin and we magnify the sins of others. Jack Miller's wife, Rose Marie, following the cue of her late husband, demonstrates how often we live like functional Pharisees. She said this, we need the gospel every day. The reason I need the gospel every day is because my name is Rosemarie Miller and I am a recovering Pharisee. I love to be in control. I'm addicted to duty, to order, to my rights, to my ways, to outward performance. Outwardly moral, full of anxieties and fears and guilt inside. I don't understand grace. I didn't even know God. I didn't even understand myself. For years, I heard the words of the gospel, but I didn't hear the music. If we're honest with ourselves, most of us hear the words of the gospel, but we don't hear the music. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would give us ears to hear the music of the gospel today. And then my prayer is that we would dance Wouldn't that be great to actually hear the music of the gospel and then to be so free that we actually dance? 
wouldn't it be great to leave church dancing? That's what I'm praying for today. But first, we have to be exposed. We have to have our hearts exposed by Jesus. We have to have our hearts exposed by God's law. So Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and pay attention in these 13 verses how often the word tradition comes up. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So the Pharisees observe that the disciples of Jesus ate without washing their hands, which I think certainly is something, if you know Peter, Peter probably did for sure. I know what you're thinking here, though. What's the big deal with that? So what if they don't wash their hands before they eat? Only if you're OCD about hand washing does this startle you. But the issue here for the Pharisees is not about hygiene. The disciples not washing their hands was not about getting germs off of their hands before they ate. It was all about tradition. It was all about obeying man-made laws because God's law did not command that you wash your hands before you eat. Pharisees came up with that, and they expected everybody else to do it. Now, notice in verse 3 that Mark includes this parenthetical statement here to explain to his predominantly Gentile audience the cultural hand-washing rituals of Jewish people. Mark tells us that the Pharisees came up with all kinds of washings. They washed their hands when they came home from the grocery store. They washed their cups and their pots a particular way. The Pharisees came up with all kinds of rules and regulations. They had all kinds of traditions that they expected everyone else to follow. Their traditions were actually a part of Israelite culture. Even the term in verse 3 for wash shows us how excessive they were. Literally in Greek, it's wash with a fist. You may have a footnote in your Bible highlighting this. Scholars debate the exact meaning of this phrase, but I believe it was a particular way in which the Pharisees washed their hands by making a fist and washing it and then doing it with the other side. They were so detailed about how one washed And if you did not do it their way, in their eyes, it was sin. The Pharisees, of course, believed in and honored God's law, the Ten Commandments, all the case laws that we see in the books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. But the Pharisees also held to what is called the oral law, the oral tradition. What was the oral law? The oral law was the explanation of the Mosaic law by the Pharisees and religious leaders. The oral law was the traditions and the rules and the regulations that they came up with and passed down through generations and that they expected every Jew to adhere to. In fact, the Pharisees and religious leaders even believed that Moses received two sets of laws upon Mount Sinai. They believed that Moses received the written law, the Ten Commandments, 
And they also believed that Moses received the oral law, the tradition of the elders. And so the oral law was the application of the Mosaic law, how it was to be lived out day by day per the infinite wisdom of the Pharisees. And before long, the oral law was elevated above God's law. It became the thing to obey. In fact, in the Mishnah, which is this ancient Jewish commentary, it says that religious leaders built a fence around the law to protect people from breaking the Ten Commandments. The Mishnah, here's an example. They came up with these, some of these are examples of how you would end up breaking the Sabbath. You cannot pluck grain on the Sabbath. You cannot loosen a knot on the Sabbath. And if you loosened a knot on the Sabbath, that was considered work, and therefore you're breaking God's law. The Mishnah states that the scribes and Pharisees should make a fence around the law. They wanted to protect the Ten Commandments in the 613 case laws. They wanted to protect God's law from being violated, so they came up with these man-made rules to keep people from breaking God's commandments. So they thought of every situation that they could think of, and they came up with a rule that would keep you from breaking one of the Ten Commandments. The Mishnah also states that the tradition is a fence around the law. And this is what the Pharisees are referring to here with Jesus. They want to know why the disciples are not holding to the tradition of the elders. For instance, in order to keep the Sabbath and not do work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees came up with all kinds of rules governing how far you could walk on the Sabbath and have it not be considered work. So there were hundreds of these man-made rules that were petty and very detailed. And the religious leaders came up with these laws because they did not want people to break God's laws. They didn't want to go into exile again. And they would enforce these laws as if they were God's law. So the problem ultimately became not breaking God's law, but instead breaking the elders' traditions, the oral law, as opposed to God's holy law. What mattered most to the Pharisees, or at least on par with God's law, was their own man-made traditions and rules and regulations. They actually elevated their own traditions and equated them with the Mosaic law. Now, think about how crazy this line of thinking is. God's law says God is holy. God's law says be holy For I am holy. God's law says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the oral law says, wash your hands the right way before you eat. Make a fist when you wash your hands. It's crazy, right? Here's why it's crazy. Because it actually reduces God's law. It lowers God's standard of perfection that he demands out of every single one of us. And it raises up man-made rules. The new Pharisee catechism question, how can a sinner be made right with God? Answer, wash your hands the right way and use the right soap. The Pharisees were only concerned about dirty hands and not dirty hearts. The Pharisees wanted you to be clean before you could eat. You had to wash your hands the way that they said you had to wash your hands. So for them, it was all about what was on the outside and not what was happening on the inside. 
Now, we may not come up with a ridiculous rule like this of how to wash your hands, but we do come up with our own versions. And honestly, they're just as ridiculous, aren't they? Christians and churches have been notorious for coming up with man-made rules and traditions like how a person is supposed to look, their hair, their clothes, what you wear, what you can watch on TV, what kind of music you can listen to, what musical style of worship is used in a church. This is all a form of legalism, and it proves that we are functioning as Pharisees when we do it. Functioning as a Pharisee means that we are more concerned with the behavior and actions of others than we are with our own heart. That's the Pharisees here. They are more concerned with how the disciples wash the dirt off of their hands more than they are with the dirt and the filth on the inside of their own hearts. And we become like them. We become Pharisees when we obsess more over other people's sins than our own. Let me say that again. We become Pharisees when we obsess more over other people's sin than our own. None of you do this, right? None of you sweet, godly people ever obsess over the actions and behaviors of others, do you? None of you sweet, godly people ever obsess more over other people's sins than your own, right? Me either. Wow, we are such awesome Christians. Jesus should be grateful that we're on his team. Not. How convicting. I am so good. I am so very, very good at focusing with a laser-like tenacity on the sins and failures of other people. Seriously, I am really good at it. If I took a spiritual gift test and this was on there, I would be high on the chart on this one. I am quite skilled in the art of minimizing my own sin and magnifying the sins of others. And I suspect that you are too. We all easily slip into functioning as Pharisees. And the reason we can all be and are Pharisees is because of what Jesus says in verses 20 to 23 in the passage that we'll look at next week. The reason why we are so good at being Pharisees is because of what is in and what comes out of our hearts, namely sin. But Jesus exposes human hearts, and Jesus exposes the hearts of the Pharisees. He answers their question about the disciples washing their hands by exposing the hearts of the Pharisees. Look at verse 6. And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother and 
Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So Jesus answers the Pharisees by telling them that the prophet Isaiah spoke about them. Jesus called them hypocrites. Jesus called the most popular, the most influential, the most well-known spiritual leaders of his day hypocrites. This unknown redneck rabbi from the backwoods of Nazareth called the most important spiritual leaders a bunch of hypocrites. This would have been all over social media back in the day. TMZ would have shoved a camera in the faces of these Pharisees and said, how do you respond to Jesus calling you a hypocrite? Jesus sternly rebuked the Pharisees and accused them of abandoning God's commandments and clinging or holding to the tradition of men, their own traditions. He said their spirituality was all a show. It was all outward. It was lip service Worship service. They talked a lot about God, but didn't really love Him in their hearts. They were teaching their tradition as if it were the Word of God. They were rejecting God's Word as the spiritual leaders, as crazy as that sounds. And they allowed people and gave permission for people to reject God's clear commands of caring for one's parents. In Judaism, honoring one's parents was of utmost importance. It was one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. You could even die. You could be stoned to death for dishonoring your parents. But the Pharisees allowed people to do this. Instead of saving up for their elderly parents, the Pharisees came up with a way to get around this. All you had to do was declare some of your money or property as korban. This is the the Hebrew word for offering. If you own something and you vowed to give it to God, it could not be used for another purpose. So the abuse came when they corbined everything so that they could keep it for themselves. Or most likely, people took money that they were saving up to help their elderly parents, and instead of using it on their parents, they dedicated it to God. They corbined it and most likely gave it to the temple. So the Pharisees were probably actually benefiting financially from this. But by coming up with this rule and allowing and encouraging people to do it, the Pharisees were abandoning God's word. Human traditions and rules and regulations can actually lead to a disregard for God's word. And it's all done in the name of God. And if we're honest, we're much more like the Pharisees than we like to admit. Let me ask you, when you read the Bible, when I read the Bible, when we read the Bible, why do we often identify with the hero of the story? Have you ever thought about that? How many of you have read the story of David and Goliath and you thought, I'm just like Goliath, always resisting the Lord? You ever read it that way? I bet you read it and thought, I'm just like the underdog, David. God helps me fight and win. Nothing wrong with that, I suppose. But I'd argue that the story is really about the hero, namely Jesus, who would come one day and really destroy God's enemies. My hunch 
is that we all like to think of ourselves as David in that passage instead of Goliath, as the disciples in this passage instead of the Pharisees. Or in Luke 18, when Jesus tells the story about the tax collector and the Pharisee, we often identify with the tax collector who beat his breast and was sorry for his sin than the smug, self-righteous Pharisee. That's why we need to heed Jack Miller's words. He said, my name is Jack Miller and I am a recovering Pharisee. If you read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, you might conclude that I speak too severely about myself. I am not usually a strict, rigid, unfeeling religious person as the man in the parable, but there is still enough of the Pharisee in me, and I believe in every one of us. The Pharisee is essentially a person who is more aware of the sins of others than of his own. He consequently feels superior to other human beings and judges them without first taking the beam out of his own eye. He also lacks loving hope. He does not expect grace to do much for him or others. We recovering Pharisees often find that in our minds we have collected albums full of dark snapshots of other people, ourselves, and God and his grace. Isn't that good? Doesn't that sting? I've shared this quote before. How many of you right now in your minds have photo albums full of dark snapshots of other people? How they have wronged you, words that they have said to you, how you don't like them. How many of you have photo albums full of bitterness towards others? or anger, or hatred, or jealousy, or envy, or insecurities. How many of you have photo albums in your mind of all the bad feelings you have towards some people, and you flip through them all the time, and you nurse your wounds? Probably all of us. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus even died for that. Jesus can set us free from those enslaving photo albums in our minds that we return to over and over again as we rehearse and nurse our wounds. There's healing for that. Let's throw away those photo albums full of dark snapshots of other people and let's let's live free. Let's not stay in the bondage of jealousy and anger and resentment and envy and bitterness anymore. Listen, I am a recovering Pharisee. And you're one too. But don't worry. Jesus is the great Savior. The gospel frees us from seeing ourselves as either the sum total of our failures or the sum total of our successes. And for the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, their identity was wrapped up in their successes. They had PhDs in the Old Testament. They were smarter than everyone else, and they knew their Bibles better than everyone else. They were privileged. They were super spiritual They had arrived and everyone else needed to step up their commitment to Yahweh. They bragged about how good they were. Their identity was the sum total of their success. Contrast that with the disciples who are always failing, aren't they? 
The disciples could very easily fall into the trap of saying, the sum total, the, our identity is the sum total of our failures. So let me ask you this morning, which of these two groups do you personally fall into? Where have you placed your identity? Is it in your successes or is it in your failures? Where is your identity really centered? I mean, really, where you live every single day. Is it your success or your failure? Or is it centered on Jesus and what he has done for you? The gospel frees us from seeing ourselves as either the sum total of our failures or the sum total of our successes. As believers, our identity is now linked and rooted in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. His perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection is our life now. Your identity is not rooted Your identity is rooted not in what you have done, either successes or failures, but in what Jesus has done for you. Not what you have done that's bad, not what you have done that's good, not what you have done at all. It's all wrapped up in what Jesus has already done for you. So here's a litmus test for determining determining if you are functioning as a Pharisee. Are you more irritated by someone else's sin than broken by your own? Are you more irritated by someone else's sin than broken by your own? Do you compare yourself with others so that you always come out on top? You always come out looking good? We say things like, did you see that guy, what he did? I'm so glad I'm not like him. He has issues. Or, look at her, she's not good at blank. I would do a much better job at that ministry than her. She has no clue what she's doing. Ligon Duncan said, isn't it interesting how we can be patient with ourselves in our own sins, but impatient with others in their sins? It's been said, if you want to get Christians angry, put them around other Christians that sin differently than they do. Aren't we all patient with our own sins, how easy it is to be impatient with others and their sins. And that's been me lately. I have to publicly confess and repent of something. When I turned in my resume almost exactly seven years ago and applied for the position of senior pastor here at Grace, I said one thing I would do by God's grace is this, to be the chief repenter in the church. Here's how I said it on my resume. As a pastor, I will strive to be the chief repenter who needs the gospel moment by moment. And I do need the gospel moment by moment. I still believe that. But I need to be the chief repenter this morning because over the past two weeks, I have been overbearing on my children. I have been frustrated with their sins more than my own. I have yelled at them. I have screamed at them in frustration and anger. I have not been broken over my sin. I have been angered by theirs. I have minimized my sin and I have magnified theirs. So I am sorry. Asher, you're the only one here. I don't know where the others are. Some are elsewhere. So I am sorry, boys, and I am sorry, Heather. 
I've already asked your forgiveness, but I ask you again publicly, please forgive me. And there have been times when I haven't loved you as much as I should, Grace. No pastor loves the church where he serves perfectly because every pastor is a sinner. So at various times throughout the years, I have held on to bitterness. I've held on to some anger. I have been hurt, and I have nursed those wounds. And they're all grown up now. My wounds are all grown up. They're healthy. They're vibrant. They're alive. That's how it is with hurts and wounds and anger and bitterness. Hurts and anger and bitterness, we think they start out as like a little sprout in a styrofoam cup like your little first grader would bring home from school. And you set it by the kitchen window and you add a little water and it lasts a couple weeks and then it dies. We think that our, when we nurse our wounds, our hurts, our anger, our disappointments, that they just stay a little sprout in a, in a styrofoam cup and, and we can manage it. That's not how they work. They grow fast and very quickly they turn into oak trees with roots and branches that go far and wide. So I need to let some of mine go. I'm sorry if I haven't loved you as I should. Leaders need to be the chief repenters in a church, and I'm trying to do that today. I'm trying to fire my inner lawyer, who I have hired to defend me. And he's very good. In fact, about a month ago, and I'm going to publicly confess to another elder in the next service, he's not here. Mike Jones confronted me about something in my office about a month ago, and I got very defensive with him. And so I'm going to apologize to him publicly in the next service. But Paul Tripp says that we all have these inner lawyers that we need to fire. Here are a few quotes by him. All of us carry inside of ourselves an inner lawyer who is easily activated and quickly rises to our defense. I don't just have an inner lawyer, I have an inner law firm. (laughs) You can fire your inner lawyer because you do not have to defend, excuse, or rationalize what grace has already forgiven. When confronted, how active is your inner lawyer arguing in your defense? Or can you listen because Christ is your only defense? I'm trying to fire my inner lawyer who I have hired to defend me. And he's great at his job. My inner lawyer is good. He gives me counsel and explains why I am not wrong, and he helps me see other people's sins and how more grievous they are than mine. And he tells me I have every right to be angry. And I need to fire him today and tomorrow and the next and so on. Leaders need to be the chief repenters. So I'm trying to model that today. I don't want to hinder the work that God is doing in my family, and I don't want to hinder the work that God is doing in this church. I want to help create a church culture where we are free to admit our sins, free to admit our failures, free to admit how stupid we've been, free to admit what idiots we are, free to admit our bitterness, our shame, our guilt, our anger, our jealousies, our envy. Who wouldn't flourish in this kind of environment? Who wouldn't grow in a church where they felt safe and loved and forgiven? Who wouldn't dance after hearing the music of the gospel? We don't want to merely be a church that proclaims the words of the gospel. We want people to hear the music too. 
We don't just want to proclaim the words of the gospel here at Grace. We want people to hear the music of the gospel too. But it's just so easy to listen to our inner lawyers and feel justified, isn't it? It's just so easy to focus on other people's sins, right? It's just so easy to have conversations where we are always right. And when we have these conversations with other people or we have these conversations in our heads, do you do that? Do you have conversations in your head? I know you do. I do. I have conversations in my head with other people where I am shooting down all of their arguments with such infinite wisdom and they're coming back and I'm saying this and I'm saying that and they're bowing before me and saying, we're not worthy, you're so wise and perfect. I have those conversations in my head and some of you have been down bowing before me, confessing my wisdom. And I know you probably have those conversations in your head too. Where you said, if they say this, I'm going to say this. And I'm going to say this. And I'm going to say this. And they're going to walk away broken and repentant. And God is going to be pleased with me. We all do this. We have conversations with other people or we have these conversations in our head, which is even more chicken and yellow belly than anything in the world, is it not? And so contrary to what a Christian should be about, when we do that, it's then that we're functioning as Pharisees. When we talk about the sins and failures of other people and we look down on them, we are functioning like the Pharisees in our passage today. We might as well be saying, "Uh, bro, you didn't wash your hands the right way before you ate. Our hearts have a built-in lawyer where we are skilled at defending ourselves. Our inner lawyer is good. We defend ourselves, our actions, our responses, and we are skilled at prosecuting others. And that's the Pharisees here. They're prosecuting the disciples. Our built-in lawyers prosecute and pass judgment on people. We all act like we know why someone does what they do and what they are thinking. We, We think we know the motives of people's hearts, don't we? We don't. I did it this week, though. I made the assumption that I, in my infinite wisdom, knew what was going on in someone's heart. I thought I could ascertain the reasons why someone was doing what they were doing. I was just being a Pharisee. Our hearts have built-in lawyers and they also have a built-in architect that quickly turns us into Pharisees where we try to earn God's love where we think we can impress him with all of our works, where we perform for him. Our inner architects are skilled at constructing ways at trying to earn God's favor. The human heart is a master architect at constructing its own rules and regulations. Here's how I can get God to like me. And when our inner architects and our inner lawyers get together, watch out. We are Pharisees with a vengeance. The Pharisees had lost sight of the gospel, and here's the proof. They were more focused on the sins of others. And that's a sure sign that you have lost sight of the gospel when the sins of others bother us more than our own. So let me say that again. A sure sign that you have lost sight of the gospel is when the sins of others bother you more than your own. And that's the Pharisees. And that's been me plenty of times in my life. I am a recovering Pharisee. Sometimes other people's sin bothers me more than my own. 
Let me rephrase that. Every single day, other people's sin bothers me more than my own. Sometimes I can just focus with like this laser-like tenacity on the sins and failures of other people. Anybody else struggle with this? Any other recovering Pharisees out there? There's still enough of a Pharisee in me, even though I readily admit that I'm a sinner. Self-righteousness, and here's why self-righteousness is deadly. Self-righteousness makes you blind to yourself, but critical of others. Self-righteousness makes you blind to yourself and all of your sins and all of your issues, and it makes you critical of others. But grace causes you to be honest with yourself and forgiving of others. And that's what we need more of, more grace and more forgiveness. Grace to be honest with ourselves and forgive others. And if we create that kind of church culture here, number one, sin will be diminished, sin will lose its power, and number two, people will grow, people will be set free, people will dance. Try it. It's freeing. As they say, confession is good for the soul. We don't want to merely be a church that proclaims the words of the gospel. We want people to hear the music too, and then we want them to dance. And preaching the gospel to ourselves every day addresses both of these issues, the self-righteous Pharisee and the guilt-laden sinner that dwell in our hearts. Since the gospel is only for sinners, preaching the good news to ourselves every day reminds us that we are indeed sinners in desperate need of God's grace. The good news of the gospel is that God does not treat us as our sins deserve because he has already treated Jesus as our sins deserve. Isn't that good news? Jesus was treated as if he were a self-righteous Pharisee for self-righteous Pharisees like us. The good news is that our sins are forgiven because of Christ's death. The good news that our sins are forgiven because of Christ's death, it it fills our hearts with joy. It gives us courage to face the day. It gives us courage to face our sins. And it offers us hope that God's favor will rest upon us, not because we're good, but because we are in Christ. We can have courage to confess our sins because God's favor does not rest upon us because we're good people. God's favor rests upon us because we are in Christ now. We can have the courage to confess our sins because we are loved, because we are secure, because we are loved and we are secure because we are in Christ. Because of all that, we can freely confess our sins. And because we are in Christ, because we are in union with Christ now, because we are his sons and daughters, we're free. Free from the penalty, free from the power of sin, free from condemnation, free from the grip of shame and guilt. We are free to confess our sins. You are free to confess your sins. You are free to confess your sins and then dance. Christian, you are in union with Jesus now. His record is your record. Your pathetic attempts of living like a Pharisee where you have, number one, trying to earn God's love through your performance, or number two, where you have looked down on others and passed judgment on them, all of that has been transferred to Jesus on the cross. All of your trying to earn God's love through your performance has been taken care of on the cross. And all of your looking down on others and passing judgment on them has been taken care of at the cross. All of your 
minimizing your sin and magnifying other people's sin has been taken care of at the cross. You don't bear that anymore. You are free. His perfect sinless life is yours now. You are clean. You are washed. You are forgiven. You are loved. And Jesus can't remember your sins. You're free. Free to confess how you have lied, cheated, worried, manipulated, harbored bitterness, refused to forgive, slandered, gossiped, faked godliness, etc. You're free to dance. I am a recovering Pharisee. And you're one too. But don't worry. Jesus is a great Savior. May his perfect righteousness free you to confess your sins. And may you not just hear the words of the gospel. May you hear the music too and then dance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your patience. Thank you that you loved us. And while we were sinners, you gave your son. And how much more will you not give us all things? Thank you for washing us, for cleansing us with the blood of your son. Thank you for our new identity of being in union with Christ. Yes, we're still sinners. We still sin every day. Because the gospel is only for sinners. And we need your grace, Father. Free us as a church. May we not just hear the words of the gospel. May we hear the music too and then dance. Do this, we ask, by the power of your spirit for your glory and for our joy and our freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.